Okay, um, who are you? I'm Alice Potts, and I am um, an elementary teacher. For me, I was an elementary teacher for many years. I'm retired now. And uh, what's uh, who are you? George Potts, and I was a science teacher in high school and college. And what about you? I'm Kristen Van Tassel, and I teach writing and American literature at a small college called Bethany. And how do we all know each other? We're family. <laughs> um, well, this episode is about road trips, and I wanted to talk about a road trip that we took from <clears throat> Wichita to New Mexico in the summer of 1986. And Describe anyone the vehicle that we traveled in. <laughs> Who wants to take this? It was it was a, a horrifically large, ugly station wagon, which we called the tank, that Dad bought, like on my sixteenth birthday. That's how he celebrated my sixteenth birthday by buying this big station wagon. And what was the rationale for buying when your eldest child was turning sixteen? Um, to buy a giant Impala station wagon. To take long trips. Okay, as we envision this trip from Wichita to New Mexico, what were the advantages of having a giant gray Impala station wagon on a trip like this? Well, the, the one that Dad provided was that we could sleep in the, do you call it a bed? The, the back of the station wagon. Yes. Yeah. And did we ever do that? I think no. Dad did when he went out on trips by himself. Maybe. But you know, I don't, oh, it, yeah. There wasn't room for all four of us. But there was plenty of room. We could drag along all kinds of things. Yeah. Like the parabolic. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did we? We had the parabolic sand collector. Oh my gosh. I almost forgot that. Can did we? <laughs> Did we take the parabolic sound collector to New Mexico? I think so. We picked up bird sounds and things, of course. Okay. We took it to Colorado, I know. So what is a parabolic sound collector? This is sort of an aside. Dead. It's a sound collector that is in the shape of a parabola. So George Potts, um, who I've known since birth, <laughs> is sort of a chaser of rainbows sometimes. Um, and his... Multi-varied interests include running marathons, fishing out of farm ponds, and for one very concentrated period, like sort of stalking birds with a parabolic sound collector to collect bird songs and then identify them based on their songs. Is that correct? That's correct. Something very um, serious happened to the tank. 1979 station wagon. Mm, station, yeah. Beautiful <clears throat> silver color. I, I, I remember it as more gray, but... I got a bargain on it. Right. As on all of my cars. Right. <laughs> and trucks. Um, and but possibly because of the bargain or possibly just because of the way the stars were aligned, we drove from Oklahoma into the Texas Panhandle, across the Texas Panhandle, and just miles from the state line, what happened? Broke down. It broke down. And this was before the era of cell phones. <laughs> Absolutely. We didn't have any flares. <laughs> Uh, we had no way of communicating, and so what method was employed by George Potts? Well, and it was like in the middle of nowhere. You know, it was a very desolate region. 
Well, so. George had to walk to the nearest service station. Except he but didn't he, walk. He didn't walk. He pulled on his running clothes and he ran. Did he put on a sweatband? Yes, of course. absolutely. It was like, so it was like high noon or something like that. So it's almost like you know Clark Kent goes into a phone booth and comes out mm-hmm. as Superman. Dad mm-hmm. rummaged around in the back and, and, and comes out with his runner's legs and his sweatband and took off down the highway like a crazy right. person. It was great. <laughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about the golden age of family road trips in America, and I'm guessing my family's stories might have reminded you of your own family's idiosyncrasies on the road. For the record, my father didn't have to run 30 miles through the wastelands of Texas to find help back in the day in 1986. As it happened, a trucker saw the tank, that is our giant gray station wagon, broken down on the side of the road and stopped to offer help. He ended up finding my dad about two miles up the road, and the two of them drove to a service station across the border in New Mexico and came back with a new fuel pump that gave our tank-like station wagon new life. But this episode isn't about Potts family road trips, it's about the history of American road trips in general. And to learn more about this, I talked to Richard Rattay, whose book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, is an informal history of family road trips in America and the innovations and technologies that made the golden age of road travel possible, including interstate highways, motels, rest stops, cruise control, CB radios, road atlases, and yes, giant family station wagons. In a way, American road trips as we know them really came of age in the years after World War II, and they did a lot to change the way America presented itself to itself. Now, you'll hear a little more from the Potts family at the very end of this episode, but for the most part, Richard and I do a deep dive into the history of American car culture, and we start by talking about the pioneering American road trips that took place a little over 100 years ago, when highways as we know them scarcely existed. Let's listen in. Car culture was just coming to the forefront around the turn of the century and around the 1900s. At that time, it was only really the wealthy and well-heeled that could even uh, afford cars until Henry Ford came along and, of course, uh, used mass production to greatly bring down the cost of automobiles and finally bring it within reach of the common man. Uh, And then people started buying them in mass during the 1920s. Auto camping became kind of a, a phenomenon. And uh, it kind of worked exactly as, as the term sounds. People would simply head out into their automobiles uh, on their way to various destinations. And when they felt compelled to, to uh, you know, spend the night somewhere, they'd simply pull over at the side of the road and set up camp, maybe uh, pull a tent out of the trunk or e- even just sleep in their cars uh, right there at the side of the road. There really weren't any uh, hotels to speak of or facilities uh, that they could depend on along the way. Uh, which uh, made it all more of an adventure for them. Um, really, America didn't set, its, uh, set itself towards building highways until the 1930s. Basically, FDR used the, the construction of roads and highways as kind of a jobs program, of course, during the Great Depression. Uh, wound up building about 3.5 million miles of highway during the 1930s. Uh, and they were very much, America was very much on its way to uh, an interstate highway system, even at that time. And then, of course, World War II came along and kind of uh, re- reset our priorities, I guess. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting how, you know, by the 1930s, finally, the nation started to think in terms of a, of a national road system. But not that much earlier, about 100 years ago, you had these promotional auto races to promote the idea that you could drive across the country. And I know that the military expedition in 1919, 99 years ago, um, had this very rigorous trip. I think Eisenhower was a part of that to try and drive from coast to coast. And it wasn't as easy um, as it might seem. I mean, the difference between a road trip now and a road trip in 1919 was just enormous. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorite stories that's in the book, and it's, it's a pretty famous story, was the, the story of the first uh, person to actually cross America by car. And that was done by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Horatio Jackson. He was a, a young surgeon, 31 years old. He was recovering from a, a bout of tuberculosis. He uh, was originally from Vermont, and he was vacationing with his new bride uh, out on the West Coast near San Francisco. And he gets invited to go to the San Francisco University Club one evening and have some cocktails with a friend. And it's there that he kind of got into uh, a heated debate with another patron at the club over whether cars were the future of transportation or whether they were just a passing fad. And even though he didn't own a car and really had never driven one, Jackson uh, argued very uh, strenuously in favor that automobiles were indeed the future of transportation and that he felt they were already so well developed and rugged that he could drive a car clear across, across the country back to his home in Vermont. Well, of course, the other guy takes him up on that bet. They agree, they agree to a bet of $50. And uh, and all of a sudden, Jackson uh, finds himself, uh, you know, having to live up to his bet and had a little explaining to do to his new bride, I'm sure, on the way home. But uh, he was smart enough to find himself a, a great mechanic in the name of uh, Sewell Crocker. And uh, on Crocker's recommendation, uh, he purchases a 20 horsepower Winton touring car and uh, and. Jackson sends his new bride home on a train. I'm sure she didn't want to be a part of such a grand adventure. And of course, keep in mind that this is at a time when there are barely any roads in the country, much less west of the Mississippi, and certainly not you know, across the Great Plains and the expanse of the, the western part of the, the United States. So this was really uh, uh, a tough proposition. So they... Um, they etch out a, a route and they avoid, you know, they try and avoid the Rocky Mountains, which were, of course, a, a major challenge for anyone attempting such a feat to try and, and get past. Instead, they head north. Fifteen miles after setting out, they blow a flat tire, have to use their only spare tire. Uh, a little bit further north of that, they ask for directions. They're given bad directions by a woman uh, who sends them 100 miles out of their way simply because she wanted some of her extended family members to get their first look at an automobile. Huh. Uh, but they continue north. They continue to, to, to blow tires. At one point, they run out of gas. Jackson has to rent a bicycle just to ride into town with empty gas cans to try and, and get gas. Uh, he blows both the tires on that bike, <laughs> winds up having to walk back carrying these heavy gas cans. Uh, but finally, they get to Utah, and along the way, they pick up a, uh, a stray dog, a pit bull named Bud. But while cr and so he becomes their, their newest traveling companion. But while crossing the, the salt flats of Utah, they find that their eyes are getting all irritated by the, the arid dust that's being kicked up by the tires. So Jackson goes ahead and, and purchases goggles for all of them, including Bud. Well, 
the press and cities along the way start uh, getting wind of this, and they start turning out to greet Jackson at every city that that he intends to pass through. Bud himself becomes kind of a national celebrity. If you can picture this, you know, adorable pit bull, with uh, wearing a pair of glasses as as he's riding along with them in the car. Um, Things get considerably easier for them once they do pass the Mississippi River. The roads, uh, the quality of the roads improves. And finally, after 63 days, they roll into Times Square in New York City uh, and become the first, uh, you know, successful people to have crossed America by car. And you can look back at that and say that was America's very first road trip. Yeah, and I, I know that there's some famous pictures of Bud with his goggles on, um, and it's interesting how that was this big celebrity exciting event. Uh, in what year was it? That was 1903. 1903, right. So uh, just a half a century later, the whole concept of, of traveling cross-country, of, of having a road trip in the United States has changed. And I, I want to touch on the way that interstates were developed, because really I think they reinvented the... Uh, the American Road Trip. And there's a quote in your book from a 1956 Home and Gardens, Better Homes and Gardens article that sort of optimistically predicts what the interstate might be like. And it says, you'll be on one-way ribbons of highway so wide and safe, your whole family will feel free from strain and worry. And you say, it was as if the new interstates would be giant conveyor belts effortlessly whisking cars from one side of the country to the other. All automobile occupants would have to do is relax and enjoy a carefree game of Parcheesi before arriving safely at their destination. Uh, The article's author went on to declare without any apparent support that while traveling on these magical new superhighways, quote, your family is is at least four times safer than on ordinary roads, end quote. So it feels like it was this time of optimism, almost like in the way that people are talking about driverless cars right now. Uh, So so what was the plan, promise, and reality of the interstate highway? Yeah, well, in a way, the interstates really did change everything. Of course, up until then, motorists had to travel along basically two-lane highways, you know, one lane going each way. And really, these roadways were only connect were only intended to connect you to go from town to town. There was no, uh, you know, overall master plan behind the coordination of these roadways, and and uh, interstates were intended to change that. And they were very different from the existing highways in many ways. I mean, first of first of all, they were elevated, uh, which was to prevent prevent flooding and assist uh, runoff so they could be more dependable and more uh, and motorists could rely on them a little bit more. Uh, of course, most of the interstates were four lanes, you know, uh, to to facilitate higher speed driving and safer, higher speed driving. There were also no at grade crossings. You only had underpasses and overpasses to keep traffic flowing in all directions. They had nice wide shoulders where cars could safely pull off onto the sides. Um, it was a restricted space, so you didn't have to worry about pedestrians or, or horse carts or anything like that, also getting onto the to the interstates with you. Um, and, it, you know, it was all designed to facilitate uh, a much higher speed crossing of, of uh, helping motorists get to where they wanted to go in a much faster, more reliable fashion. So they, in many ways, it really was a a revolutionary uh, difference compared to the experience that motorists had had prior to the time that they were built. Well, I want to talk about the ways that the interstate really transformed the American landscape, specifically 
in the attractions that we ended up driving to, uh, where we ended up sleeping on the road, and what we ended up eating and how we ended up eating on the road. So let's start with attractions. What kinds of attractions sprang up to, to, to cater to this new way of automobile travel on the interstates? Yeah, uh, well, obviously, um, the various entrepreneurs around the country had already started building um, theme parks, and those became local attractions. But as uh, as the interstate highway system facilitated better travel, of course, they they allowed these theme parks to start drawing people from uh, farther and farther away. Um, so that was a main thing. Of course, you had Walt Disney come out with uh, with with uh, Disneyland in 1955, so just right before um, the construction of the interstate highways. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, one of the big draws, especially during the late 50s and 1960s, was simply America's national parks and, and um, landmarks of, of historic interest. Between 1955 and 1972, we saw uh, attendance at America's national park sites increased from six, 62 million to uh, more than 165 million. So attendance almost tripled at uh, the national parks around the country, uh, and you know that would include uh, also sites like the the White House and Civil War battlegrounds and and things of that nature. Um, and also Florida became a primary destination and, and really, uh, you know, that wasn't just because of the weather and the beaches, but that was because many of the men who had served in World War II had also trained in Florida and saw the beauty of the state down there uh, and the beaches and, and wanted to share that same experience with their families after, after having you know, returned to the states from the war and started their families. So that was a big draw. Yeah, it's interesting how... Uh the idea of national parks was much older than the idea of the interstates, but I think it transformed how the interstates were were experienced, and and, and or, I'm sorry, how national parks were experienced. And one of my favorite quotes from Edward Abbey's 1968 book Desert Solitaire is about that very dynamic, about the idea that cars are suddenly giving access to the wilderness and that people are a little bit flummoxed by the wilderness. He says, look here, I want to say, for God's sake, fellas, get out of them there machines, take off those fucking sunglasses, unpeel both eyeballs and look around, throw away those goddamn idiotic cameras. For Christ's sakes, folks, what is life like if full of care if we do not have time to stand and stare, eh? Yes, sir. Yes, madam. I entreat you. Get out of those motorized wheelchairs. Get off your foam rubber backsides and stand up straight like men, like women, like human beings and walk, walk, walk upon our sweet and blessed land. So I think there was a time when uh, it actually took a lot of effort to get to these wilderness areas. And now people were coming to them almost in the manner of amusement parks and Park rangers like Edward Abbey at, at Arches National Monument in Utah sort of had to talk people into getting out of their cars to actually experience the wilderness. Uh, let's talk about the way f these interstate highways and these classic road trips transformed food along the roadway. Yeah, uh, well, with the interstates uh, came also the rise of the great chains. And really, I think those can be traced back to kind of Howard Johnson's um, getting that going. He, uh, Howard Deering Johnson was the one with the foresight to really invent franchising uh, and then also to purchase some exclusive contracts first along the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike so that he could set up restaurants uh, at these roadside plazas and begin catering to, uh, to motorists who are traveling along uh, the interstates in increasing numbers. 
So it started with Howard Johnson's. Then, of course, uh, eventually you get into the bigger chains. McDonald's was early on. Um, Wendy's came along in the 1970s. There were other other chains as well, in and out Burger out west and Made Right Burger and whatnot. And, and uh, of course, eventually what caused a, a great boon for most of these hamburger chains was the invention of the drive through window. And, and and is it fair to say that that's that's an interstate thing, or is that just in tandem with uh, with the rise of car culture in general in the nineteen fifties? Yeah, 1970s? I, I would I would say it's probably more in tandem with car culture than strictly to the interstates. But certainly, uh, you know, the owners of of many of these chains saw the saw the potential of seeing all these motorists. Um, uh, traveling along the interstates in in places far away from home, and they knew that if they could come out um, and offer customers a consistent experience, and a you know uh, that customers would knew what knew what to expect when they got to their restaurants. Um, you know, a, a Big Mac in in, uh, in uh, Birmingham tasted the same as one back home in, in Burlington, Wisconsin. So customers appreciated that kind of predictability and consistency that chains could offer. And um, that was a, a big reason for their success. It's interesting. It's almost like those these are manifestations of home as you travel. You have at least at least even if things look different than, than the McDonald's taste the same. And there's a corollary here. In hotels, which really, really sort of transformed into motels. In fact, when I was a kid, motels are all I knew. You know, I didn't really, a hotel was just something I heard about. A motel is where I stayed. So how did, uh, how did the rise of travel, one, transform hotels into motels, and, and, and two, standardize them and, and really reinvent them? Yeah, well, you know, I alluded to auto camping earlier, and um, obviously, entrepreneurs saw all these people pulling off to the side of, of the road to simply uh, camp, uh, and they saw their opportunity to make some money. So they began building some simple shacks, and, and these were eventually formed into um, what were called motor courts, where people could just pull up to basically a kind of a, a shack or a cabin and, and pay a fee and have a few simple amenities, basically nothing more than a roof to put over their head and a, and a, a pillow to lay their heads on each night. Um, really, that all changed with, uh, with two entrepreneurs, one by the name of Charles Kemmins Wilson, who was responsible for the Holiday Inn chain. Um, he had a absolutely miserable experience. He was actually already a, a multimillionaire and, and um, post age 50 when he went on a cross country trip with his family, leaving from his home in Memphis. I think they were headed for Washington, D.C. And he had had just a, a horrible experience at staying at some of these motor courts where he was uh, charged a, a fee for just about every amenity uh, that he wanted available and even charged a fee for each uh, child that he had along with him. And I think he had um, four or five, maybe six, six kids. So he was charged an additional fee for each kid that was more than the flat fee for the room itself. So he was very frustrated by this. And uh, he swore to his wife after they completed their trip that he would build a, a, a hotel chain where um, nice families could stay. They could uh, pay a, a, you know, a price that, that was fair and that was predictable wherever um, they found one of, one of his uh, motels. And so he went, went ahead and, and went forward with his plan. And, and um, he came up uh, with the design for the Holiday Inn. And then uh, quickly on his heels, there was another gentleman by the name of Marion W. Isbell, 
who do, started doing the same thing, mostly along Route 66 in Arizona. And uh, he came up, started buying properties and, and um, came up with the, the Ramada in chain. And of course, there were several other uh, gentlemen who did the same thing. And then we had the rise of the, the, the hotel and motel chains at that time. One thing that really captured my fancy in your book was the idea of speed limits. I don't know why it didn't occur to me before that, of course, there was a time before speed limits existed. Yeah. That period of 55 miles an hour, which actually uh, resulted in a Sammy Hagar song, <laughs> I, I Can't Drive 55, among among other things, really created its own car culture, which was sort of fascinating. Um one, you talk about your dad's strategies for, you know, not getting a ticket. And I've seen this before and I still use it, the idea of sort of shadowing another car, find a car, finding another car that's going a little bit faster than the speed limit and, and sort of trailing him a little bit so maybe he gets pulled over instead of you. So why don't you talk about these 55 mile an hour speed limit era technological and strategical changes? Yeah, and my, my dad was all full of strategies. Of course, he tried to travel in the uh, in the right lane as much as possible, thinking that police would be less likely to look for speeders in the right lane, um, and that uh, you know resulted in us having to constantly leapfrog slower traffic ahead of us. And then from the outset of a trip, he would he had four cars, I or four four siblings. He had four kids, my three siblings. Uh, and he would assign each one of us to a little target zone to kind of monitor along the road ahead of us and behind us. So while he would uh, be in the driver's seat and be looking along the right side, uh, he might assign one of us to look for uh, uh, speed patrol officers up along the left-hand side. He'd have another one, look, another one of us looking out the back window to see if there were any uh, policemen sneaking up from behind. And he'd even have my brother uh, looking at the skies for any aircraft overhead uh, that might be uh, you know, trying to get a read on us as well. So it, it became, became kind of a full family effort to look out for the speed patrol officers. But then, as you mentioned, there are also various devices that the 70s provided uh, for us to also try and, and uh, uh, elude the long arm of the law, as it were. Uh, cruise control had actually been invented uh, in the 1950s by a man uh, by the name of Ralph Teeter, who was just a fascinating guy. He was actually a blind mechanical uh, engineer. He'd actually been blinded in an in a, uh, accident since his youth, but uh, found that he was very good at designing things and working with his hands. And amazingly enough, uh, went into mechanical engineering and was responsible for a number of important patents. But he came up with the idea for cruise control because he was um, constantly in a car driven by his patent attorney and the man had an annoying habit of speeding up or slowing down in time, uh, in pace with his, uh, his talking. And this drove Teeter absolutely nuts. And so he swore he would figure out uh, something to do about this. So he got to work on a, on a way uh, for the car to maintain a constant speed. And that became uh, a device he called originally Speedostat and then eventually Cruise Control. And then during the 1970s, when uh, the 55 mile an hour speed limit uh, came into effect, um, that was, of course, marketed as a way for people to maintain a constant speed and not be uh, not be stopped by speed patrol officers out on the highways. I didn't realize how 70s specific uh, the CB was. So tell us a little bit about uh, CB culture, how it came to uh to be common in the 1970s, and then also how it created 
the song Convoy, which is one of my all-time favorite ironic country <laughs> music songs. Yeah, yeah. The CB actually uh, was another device that had kind of come out of World War II, so the technology had been around for a long time. And originally, it was used predominantly by companies with a lot of service staff that needed to update each other on their whereabouts and, uh, you know, uh, say where they were making deliveries and whatnot. And it became kind of a, a, a free way for them to communicate with each other. CB, of course, stands for Citizen Band, and it was a set of frequencies set aside by the, by the government for use by citizens so that they could communicate with each other. But along comes the fuel crunch of the 1970s, uh, and it really becomes used by truckers more so to keep each other updated on the whereabouts of Smokies that, you know, that were laying speed traps for them along the interstates. Uh, and also where they could find uh, gasoline, because, of course, um, due to the fuel shortages uh, that many gas stations frequently ran out of gas towards the end of, uh, of certain months. And so uh, truckers kept each other updated on where they could actually find fuel along the interstates. Um, so gradually over time, uh, truckers using CBs kind of got... Uh, got used to hearing each other's voices. They got to know each other almost in a way that we use the internet and social media today. Uh, and just like we, many of us do today, they came up with handles for each other. So you'd get, you know, mama flapjacks talking to, to old uh, Leatherface or, or whatever nicknames that they would make up for, for each other out on the road. And it became kind of a, an anonymous form of social media for truckers to communicate. Um, and of course, a lot of the vernacular that they came up with, these folks are all trying to basically, uh, elude the law and, and, you know, keep out of trouble with, uh, with speed patrol officers while out on the highways. So they would come up with this colorful vernacular, uh, to talk to each other. Of course, they would, you know, refer to, um, uh, police officers as Smokies, uh, as kind of a, uh, a uh, acknowledgement of the Smokey the Bear character that was popular because of the um, anti-forest fire prevention ads of the day. He Smokey wore the same kind of uh, wide-brimmed patrol uh, hat that the patrol officers also wore uh, in those days, and uh, you know they would the truckers would allude, would mention to each other if there was a, a, a police officer with a radar gun up ahead, they would call him a, you know, a Kojak with a Kodak or a Smokey taking pictures. Um, and there was all sorts of this colorful terminology that they would use over the CBs. Well, there was a, an advertising executive that noticed that uh, this uh, vernacular was kind of becoming popular and that, that more motorists were also using CB radios to, uh, to keep up with the whereabouts of police officers. And, and uh, so he worked this into an ad campaign that he came up with at that time. He came up with a, uh, a snappy little song that called Convoy. And, um, and like I said, originally it was used in a, in, a, in a bread campaign. Well, the campaign became so popular, he turned it into a full-fledged song. 
uh, the song Convoy shot to number one, not just uh, in America, but in countries around the world. It told uh, you know, the story of kind of an outlaw trucker who was leading this, this convoy across America. They were trying to uh, you know, elude police and, and break through uh, uh, roadblocks and, and, and whatnot. Um, but it became a, a fabulously popular song. It was eventually turned into a movie with, I believe, Chris Christopherson and Ali McGraw. And uh, this CB craze and the, the talk that came with it uh, became a, you know, a true phenomenon. And you'd have regular, ordinary businessmen, you know, uh, closing out conversations saying 10-4 and encouraging each other to, to keep on trucking. And... Um, uh, it, yeah, it was just uh, an international phenomenon. It, it really presaged these crazes we've seen more recently, like the the texting uh, craze of the 2000s, or you know the way Snapchat is used to communicate now. That this culture uh, grew around the CB and that that movie Convoy. I remember, or I'm sorry, the the song Con- Convoy. I remember hearing about it when I was young. But I left for a um, a Land Rover expedition across the Americas in 2003, and the and the Land Rover. I, Drove had a cassette deck in it, and so I bought a, a bunch of tapes, and one of them was like truckers, gr- trucking's greatest hits, and I was just mesmerized by this convoy song just because it's so absurd. I mean, it it's sort of wrapped up in the in the in the lingo of truckers, um, but then it also romanticizes the task of truckers not to just like carry goods across the United States to be stocked in various stores and then coming back to carry more goods in the other direction, but it sort of you know, was about this convoy that was just breaking through all of these police barricades, and uh, eventually they had 85 trucks by Tulsa, and the National Guard was out in Chicago, and the, the, the narrative just builds and builds, and suddenly they're in New Jersey at the Jersey Shore, and then the song just sort of ends, you know, like there's really nothing that happens in the song except for crashing through barriers and sort of ending up on the other coast, so. Yeah, and and in a way, it was kind of an early rap song as well, right? You had this this fast kind of delivery of these rhyming lyrics that had a, a, a snappy rhythm to it. And, uh, you know, it was all laid uh, against a, a catchy uh, little guitar riff that actually Chip Davis, who turned out to be a, a fairly well-known uh, country and Western singer, uh, he, he actually wrote the music for the song. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it turned out to be a phenomenon. Before NWA used rap to editorialize about police, uh, I guess the Convoy song, uh, editorialized about a different level of police enforcement, the uh, the speed limit enforcement. That, but um, yeah, it's uh, I'll probably put some sort of link to that in the show notes, just because it's a it's a delightfully absurd song. Um, so, from a personal perspective, um, we are driving with our families and sitting in cars, and I think that there's a few iconic types of cars that show up. Of course, there's the trucker, and and in the song Convoy, a a VW microbus pops up in the lyrics at one point. But I think if you really think about the road trip vehicle, it has to be the station wagon. Uh, So why don't you talk a little bit about the kinds of cars that responded to this new era of interstate mobility in the middle and mid-late 20th century? Yeah, I think it was almost mandatory for every suburban family during the 1970s to own a Ford Country Squire. <laughs> Is that? Uh, I uh, I don't know. Maybe if your your family did as well, Rolf. But we, uh, we had an Impala. We had a Chevy Impala station wagon, and it was yeah. That, yep. 
it was like baby shit gray with a purple in- interior. And it, my sister cried because my dad got it when she was 15, about to turn 16. And that, like that was suddenly the car that we had in our family. But it was very functional, and I'm sure that that was by design. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, many people wonder, well, why were all these uh, models of station wagons, why did they have the, the fake wood paneling put on the side? And, of course, that, that kind of harkens back to the roots of the station wagon. Uh, and and uh, kind of the name station wagon kind of alludes to, to those roots. Um, they were actually cars that were used around train stations at the turn of the century. Of course, when cars were first being developed in the early 1900s, uh, trains were still the, the predominant form of long-distance transportation, um, but what taxi services realized was that these new automobiles were very good for transferring passengers, train passengers, from uh, where they lived uh, to, the, to the actual train stations. Um, the problem with the design of many early automobiles is that they were really only designed to carry passengers, but not the cargo as well. And so um, a lot of handymen saw their opportunity to take the cars that were being produced by companies such as Ford, and they would simply saw off the metal bodies behind the windshield uh, and recreate a body all in wood that would allow the passengers to sit up front uh, and the big uh, uh, trunks that the passengers would, of course, pack and, and need to take with them for these train trips those could be accommodated in the cargo area in back. So that was really the, uh, the genesis of the station wagon. Um, other companies saw the utility of design like that. Of course, any kind of delivery services um, started buying station wagons as well. Uh, you had affluent passengers who were pro- predominantly the ones that were taking these long train trips also saw the, the practicality uh, of the station wagon design. And so they wanted to buy them for their own use. And uh, and so station wagons became very popular and they started trying to actually outdo each other. Uh, the, the makers of the station wagons tried to outdo each other with more and more elaborate designs and, and more more elaborate woodwork in these these wood bodies. Um, and that, of course, drove up the price of station wagons and really station wagons were a very prestigious automobile by the time of the 1920s and 1930s because only the very, very wealthy could afford uh, these very well-built, very elaborately crafted uh, wood-bodied automobiles. Uh, Then along comes World War II, and of course, American factories, uh, especially car factories, um, who had switched over to producing uh, you know, war planes and, and tanks and jeeps and things of that nature, um, they had improved, doing so had allowed them to improve their production uh, uh, techniques and capabilities. And so after the war, they realized, okay, we, you know, we don't have to uh, rely on third parties to create these elaborate um, wood-bodied station wagons anymore. We can produce them ourselves with these new production techniques um, but they would build all steel bodies, which got away from the, the wood bodies, of course. Um, and so by the time of the 1970s, um, car makers started re-putting these, these uh, fake wood paneling stickers and, and um, on, the, on the sides of the station wagons as kind of a, an homage to the glory days of the woodies, the wood paneled station wagons. 
which I think became famous because they were they were big enough to put a surfboard in, uh, and so they made themselves into uh, uh, references in in pop songs and stuff in the fifties and sixties. Now, uh, there came a point in the 1980s and 1990s where really the minivan replaced the station wagon. And in fact, there was a point at which the big family truckster, you know, the, the, the giant automobile that was really a throwback to the 50s and 60s was replaced by something much smaller. Um, and and uh, I suspect this has something to do with gas prices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, by the time of the 1980s, you had introduction of the first, uh, the minivan, the, the town and country, I believe, by Chrysler, if I have that correct. Um, and uh, what, what what's kind of funny is that um, station wagons now, you know, we look back on them as kind of these, uh, or, or minivans, we kind of look back on them and say, you know, these are the automobiles of squares, you know, they're the automobiles of our parents. But at the time, minivans were seen as kind of the 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 uh, cool new hip vehicle for young parents to own. Um, they were smaller. They were easier to park, easier to handle around town. Uh, kids liked uh, liked them better. They were easier to get in and out of than the station wagons that had preceded them. They were more fuel efficient. So they offered all these advantages over these big beastly station wagons that we had during the 70s. Um, and that's why they became so popular and kind of replaced the, the, the position that the station wagon once had in, in you know, American car culture. Yeah, I think back when, when Clinton was elected, he it was credited to soccer moms. You know, it was this image of this uh, efficient transport for suburban families around that time. Now, uh, speaking of families, let's talk about the inside of the car on the family road trip, because that's where things went down. And I think... These days where you can have six different people sort of on six different channels inside their own heads as the road trip is happening, that's a pretty new phenomenon. So what? how did people entertain themselves and pass the time during road trips uh, in this golden age between about 1950 and, and 1990? I, I know how I did, but I'm curious to know some of the examples, both historically and personally, for you. Yeah, well, of course, the, there came up with the, the the famous road travel games that many families, you know, still enjoy. I guess the ABC game where you're looking for you're, you're looking at billboards and and uh, the little insignias on cars and whatnot to um, to to go through the alphabet and find a word that starts with with each successive letter of the alphabet. And of course, you had uh, I Spy and other games like that. Um, Personally, my mom would keep a uh, game bag that she would uh, have a bunch of like dime store games in. You had the the, the little plastic games with the, the ball bearings that you'd need to navigate through a maze, you know, and get to the to the end of the maze. Or there was Wooly Willy, which was this cartoon character that was beneath a, a plastic bubble, and you would use a, a magnet to guide little metal shavings over and put beards and mustaches and funny haircuts on top of uh, of Wooly Willie. We had and, one of those. Yeah. And um, so she, and uh, also the, the the yes and no invisible ink games were, uh, you know, it was a, a, a booklet of little games. There was like, I remember Find uh, Mine Hunt, I think, where you had to avoid these mines and you had to locate a, a submarine and there was a hangman game in there and then you would use this invisible ink pen to reveal the, the, the mines or the, the next letter in the hangman game. Um, those were very popular. 
and uh, I, I used to love playing those. Uh, but my favorite game, uh, which came out during the 1970s, was one of the very first handheld electronic games, and that was Mattel Electronic Football, which was just a, a, you know, a ridiculous little game. You had a game screen about the size of a, a stick of gum, and as a football running back, you had one other blocker out there with you against three defenders, and you were just a, a basically a little red minus sign uh, that you could control to move up and down and forward and try and elude the tacklers ahead of you. And the tacklers were just uh, minus signs as well, just a little bit dimmer. That was the only thing that that, that distinguished your offensive player from the defensive players that you were trying to elude. I've actually already talked about this in another podcast in the context of this year's catalog. Mine, mine was a Coleco, which is probably sort of an off-brand. Uh, yeah. But it's amazing how it is just so primitive compared to the games kids play now, but how just fixated I was. I created my own little leagues on my Coleco electric football game. Yeah, you know, another thing I mentioned in my um, podcast about the, the Sears catalog, the, the old Christmas wish book from the 1970s, uh, was music technology. And your book reminded me that the eight-track tape was pretty revolutionary in the way that you could make music portable. Yeah, and the eight-track, a lot of people don't know this, was actually developed by Bill Lear of Learjet fame. Uh, originally, he intended the technology for use in, in, his, um, in his jets. Uh, and, of course, he was looking for a technology that, that wouldn't skip if there was turbulence or if there was excessive movement. Um, and so he worked with uh, uh, with several uh, uh, developers to, to, to come up with the eight track system. And once he did, he saw the potential for it, not just to be used in aircraft, but also in cars. Um, and so he went out. He uh, he got licensing, I believe, from RCA Victor to get many of the their entire music library. Um, placed onto eight-track cassettes, and then he marketed the device to Ford. I think uh, the Thunderbird was one of the first vehicles for the eight-track to to, um, to uh, be used in. And uh, you know, of course, it allowed motorists, uh, in the same way as as uh, passengers on aircraft, to be able to listen to the music that they wanted to when they wanted to um, out on the road. It was an extremely uh, practical, portable device. And then when it became successful in cars, then they came out with home units so that um, music lovers could transfer their music between the car and their homes. Uh, and it became an enormously popular uh, uh, medium. And of course, the, the cassette tapes were sort of the successor to that, um, which were very much a part of uh, how people like me in the 80s listen to music indoors and at home. And in fact, I'm going to do another episode on the cassette as a technology but it also created an interesting dynamic in that you could choose your music inside of the car during the road trip but unlike this day and age until the walkman came along you couldn't really have your own music listening to, uh, to listen to so did this in your road trips create an intergenerational divide about which music to listen to Oh, absolutely. And usually, uh, you know, as the youngest of four kids, I came up on the short end of things. Now, when my dad originally bought, uh, he, uh, for one of the few times in his life, he treated himself to a new automobile in 1974. It was an Oldsmobile Toronado. Uh, and it was the first vehicle that we had with an eight track, uh, included in it. And it's kind of a, a promotional extra, 
the the guy who sold him the car also included a couple of free eight tracks. One was a an eight tracks of famous TV uh, and movie themes, and uh, another was uh, I think it was Barry Manilow too, the one with uh, with Mandy, the song Mandy on there. Sure. And so during that first trip that we had that car, you know, we would listen to basically the theme song from Mash. And uh, Barry Manilow for hours on end, just because we were also taken with the novelty of being able to play any song that we wanted, uh, you know, when we wanted to out on the road. But then uh, as time went along, my older siblings kind of took control of the airwaves, so to speak, or at least the eight track deck. Uh, and uh, my oldest brother was a big disco music fan, so he would have Donna Summer, MacArthur Park playing over and over again. Uh, and, uh, you know, come the eighties, I would have Duran Duran or whoever I wanted to. And so there was always constant fights over what was played, uh, on, uh, on the stereo system in our cars during our trips. And again, these fights and, and, and the communal dynamic is part of what made this era sort of the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, a little bit of a shoulder in the nineties, the golden age of the family road trip. Uh, what killed this golden age or what transformed it in such a way that it, we d- really don't travel this way anymore? Yeah, well, really, the reason that we were all hitting the road during the 1960s and 70s was because uh, the price of, of airfares was simply out of reach for most families, especially families with a lot of kids in there. Um, on average, uh, an air ticket uh, uh, cost three to eight times what uh, the same air ticket would cost today. Um, and that was largely because of the regulation of the airline industry uh, leading up to the 1970s. Basically, the government was able to dictate to uh, all the national carriers uh, the routes that, that they would run, how much they would charge uh, for airfares for every, um, for every route. Um, they told them how, how often they could run a route. They even uh, told them how that they should arrange the, the seats on every aircraft that they flew. So it was a highly, highly regulated industry. And really what changed things was a, a man by the name of Herb Kelleher, who was an attorney who lived in Texas. And what he saw is that, yeah, airlines were subject to regulation so long as they passed over state lines. That's the only reason that the federal government would have any uh, jurisdiction as to um, to regulate the airline industries. But of course, he lived in a state in Texas, uh, which is distinguished by having a number of very um, well-populated cities at its various ends and people wanting to shuttle back and forth between those cities. And so he saw the opportunity for creating an airline that would simply operate within the borders of Texas alone and therefore would not be subject to any of this this federal regulation, which which kept airfares so high. So he formed a little company called Southwest Airlines. And they weren't the only only ones to realize it, but of course he lived in in the state in Texas where it was uh, most practical and most profitable to run an intrastate airline. And he very quickly on became uh, very wildly successful and that kind of um, it, it offered the ability to fly to a whole new class of people. For the first time, college students and, and families who simply wanted to fly to a different city, city in Texas to visit grandma and grandpa uh, were able to afford to be able to do so. 
And so he became very wildly successful. Of course, this kind of rankled the national carriers because here they were subject to all this federal regulation and couldn't, were unable to lower their, their airfares to really compete, especially in the state of Texas with, with Southwest. Um, and, uh, you know, Southwest in that way became kind of the, the, the model for the country. And so there was this um, push uh, from um, consumers to um, do away with all this regulation that artificially kept airfares so high. And finally, in 1978, the Carter administration agreed, and uh, President Jimmy Carter signed the Airline Deregulation Act, which would uh, basically phase out regulation of the airlines over a several-year period. As it turned out, it happened uh, even faster than that. Um, of course, airfares came way, way down in price. You had the rise of, of many um, uh, smaller uh, national car- carriers that um, you know, saw their opportunity to, to, to try and be sec- successful in this new deregulated environment. That created a very uh, competitive environment, um, created very cheap airfare tickets, and pretty soon, um, people were uh, parking their station wagons and other vehicles at home and all of a sudden flying off to these far-off family vacation destinations. And really, that was the, the beginning of the end of the golden era of the road trip. What might you tell the, the, the family road trippers of 2018, that, that family of six that might have been like yours, or even a family of four? Um, what are the ma- main differences between what a road trip might be like now in 2018 and, and one from the golden age back in 1978? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously the experience has changed because of all the personal electronics that have, uh, you know, been created and, and are so prevalent in our lives now. Now it seems like everybody is on their own personal device, whether it's a smartphone or an iPad or, or just listening to music on their, their headphones and, and whatnot. Uh, it seems even when you're traveling together in a car these days that we're kind of all off uh, in our own little worlds. Um, but, you know, uh, on an encouraging note, I did see that there was an article just a few days ago in the New York Times, I think it's by the Associated Press, um, asking the question of whether road trips are becoming trendy again. Uh, I think people are seeing, um, you know, all the, 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 the problems and hassles of, of what airfare these days or what air travel these days uh, includes. You know, they're seeing uh, the prices really aren't that so cheap anymore, especially for um, families with more than a few kids uh, in them. And then, you know, there's the hassle of having to get to the airport hours ahead of your flight time. And then if you're if you're checking any baggage at all, you're waiting you know, another half hour after you land on the other side. And so the time is kind of stacking up when you compare it to the, the time you could spend out on the road during a road trip. Um, and so uh, at least according to recent surveys, um, Americans or especially millennials are turning more and more back to the idea of road trips. And, and the reason that they give is that they like the, the idea of being able to, to stop where you want when you want. And so once again, um, it's becoming more about the journey rather than the destination. And I see that as a very encouraging sign that maybe it's not all about just getting to this final destination and, and, you know, getting to the theme park or getting to the beach as quickly as possible. 
maybe people are realizing the merit of enjoying the journey once again and being able to stop off at different roadside attractions and be being able to enjoy this kind of shared experience. Who did the driving? Dad. Dad. Dad, Dad did all did the driving. Did 100% of the driving. Mm-hmm. To drive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you listen to the radio on the road? Do you no, recall? Not too much. No, not we when we went long did, distance. Did I take my tape recorder that had the bird song? <laughs> 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 on that one. You wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> By then, we were tired of bird songs. <laughs> How did we pass the time? I can remember spending a lot of time reading it in the car. Or also just looking out the window. I mean, that was in the era when you just looked out the window <laughs> and watched, you know, the electric lines go up and down. I totally remember that. I remember, like, sort of fantasizing that I was had superhuman strength and that I could run alongside the right, car. Right, exactly. Well, right, Dad would get mad at us if we didn't look out the window enough. Yes. Like, if we were right. reading too much, he would scold us and tell us to look out the window. And we're out in the great outdoors, and here you guys have your <laughs> noses stuck in a book. And Dad, Dad, like, firmly believed in pulling off at every single scenic vista. And historical and site. historical site. Yes. And reading the from sign. top to bottom the sign, yeah. Right. <laughs> you would almost think he was an educator or something. And since he was the driver, he was able to make these decisions. Yes. You the latter one. I, I had control of the keys, too, so you couldn't drive well without me. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Richard Rattay's new book on the history of American road trips, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.